Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Mark Terrell. He is the founder of the Reluctant Leader Academy. He specializes in helping people understand and identify their motivation using a tool called Motivational Maps. And we share some views around the right and wrong reasons for wanting to be in leadership and what makes a good leader. So we're going to discuss those today. Mark, would you mind giving a 60 to 90 second introduction to your background? Thank you, Marcus. Yes, I will indeed. I uh, set up the Reluctant Leader Academy from my own experience of reaching that position of leadership in my family retail business. So I left school, joined that business, and eventually found myself in charge. And when I got there, I didn't really realize at the time, but I was ill-equipped. I didn't really, really realize what it entailed, and I winged it. But now I know a lot more about what I should have been doing. And that's really why I set up the Academy to help business owners that have got to the point in their business where they need to become the people lead and not the technical lead that they probably started out as. So I teach them, firstly, understanding what motivates them, because I think they need they definitely need to make, be the most motivated person, firstly. And then I teach them the three principles of leadership, which I see is mindset first, know the process and understand each of the skills you need working through that process. This uh, reminds me a lot of Michael Gerber's uh, model of the technician, uh, the manager and the entrepreneur. Um, And certainly a lot of the work that I've done over the last uh, 20 years has been based around triangles because they're (laughs) nice and simple. Um, So talk me through um, your model. I use a model called liberating leadership, which is combination of lots of different models and that's what I'm I, I use because it brings together those key messages that people when they are in that leadership position they need to understand and that central mindset thing is imperative in that first of all we've got to realize that we have to be in that position of a, a mindset that actually encourages support and challenge in equal measures First of all, we, we've got to make sure that we're not overly supportive so we, we don't create a, a team that's dependent on us and that's a, a common thing I come across or be too, too overly challenging and realise that we then cause too much stress in the team. Yes, we might get some short-term benefits of um, performance, but ultimately that's not sustainable. So to draw a parallel to what I've been teaching, the rescuer, is the one who helps without boundaries or permission, creates upward delegation, gets run ragged, then complains how hard that they're working. And they're very disempowering because often they'll micromanage. The persecutor, on the other hand, is the one who is critical and has a tendency to attack the individual rather than behavior. They drive down the performance of the team to the lowest common denominator. No one dares put their head above the parapet in order that they don't get noticed because it's better to not be noticed than to be noticed for any reason generally. Because even if you're doing well at the moment, the minute you put a foot wrong with their mismatched expectation, then you're going to get it in the neck. So again, if you've been listening to my podcast for a while, these concepts should be familiar to you. So, Mark, tell me this then. If you look at the qualities that make a good leader, what are the best qualities in terms of the motivation to become one? 
Well, that's interesting, actually, because we're going to talk a lot, obviously talk a lot about motivations. And you'd think that one of the key things would be wanting to be in charge. But actually, we spoke briefly before we started recording about Patrick Lencioni and what he talks about. And I think just being in charge and wanting to be in charge is not enough. You've got to have more than that that drives you and wanting to make a difference. So very much my model and what I work to is actually a leader developer. So if you have the mindset that you are developing your team, which is ultimately what you want to do, because if you do that, that's going to free up your time. They're going to be far more interdependent. And ultimately, that will create a better environment. And bear in mind, I work with business owners. And my goal is to give them more time and freedom. But ultimately, if they are less, the business is less dependent on them, Ultimately, that means that their business is more valuable when they come to sell it. And that was definitely the case when I sold my business. I unconsciously worked myself to a position where I wasn't really the biggest cog in the, uh, in the machine. I was someone that was more oiling the machine as opposed to being that biggest cog. So with the biggest cog, we stopped turning, then all the cogs around to stop turning. So I think when, when we think about um, those key leadership skills, the one thing you've got to remember is that you've, you've got to make yourself um, redundant at some point. And working towards that is something that um, you, you need to do. And that's by developing your team. I think in my experience, where leaders have a sense of entitlement, where they make it about them, then they fail in their number one duty, which is to create more leaders. They don't create the environment for people to blossom and grow into uh, to meet their potential. And uh, as a result, they become a bottleneck. And often that's driven by ego. So in terms of the motivational maps, I'd be curious to see whether or not these can help to identify positive and less positive traits around leadership and how you use that uh, to help someone develop in the areas that they need to develop to become an effective leader? So that, that's a really great question. And, and the reason why motivation is really important is because basically what I learned was that I spent far too much time when I was running my business doing too much of what d- didn't motivate me. So first of all, it's not just about what motivates you, it's understanding what doesn't motivate you. And if you're doing too much of that, that's going to become demotivating. It would never give the energy you need to do the things that you do want to do. So first of all, think about that. Think about, do you actually want to be in charge? Now, I know leadership isn't about being in charge, uh, but in respect to what I do mostly, I work with business owners who feel that they're in charge. But that's part of my challenge is understanding and getting them to understand it's not just about being in, in charge. So understanding what doesn't motivate you, but also realizing that there are certain things that get you out of bed in the morning, things that are really important to you, give you energy. And if you get that energy, you will be far better at leading a team because you will feel better. So the types of things that I see is prevalent and are important to people are doing something that is worthwhile and meaningful, which in itself is a bit of a an understanding around that is, well, what is it that's actually important to you? What gets you out of bed? And if, if it's meaningful and worthwhile, what I see as meaningful and worthwhile might be completely different to what you see as meaningful and worthwhile. So first of all, you've got to understand what is worth, worthwhile for you. And then what are the things that you want to be? Do you want to be that creator? Do you want to be the innovator in your 
business. And that's where I was. I wanted to do, I bring new ideas in and innovate, bring up. I was the one that brought in to our retail business the scanning that we take for granted now. So I was the one that pushed that. And in those days of the uh, the mid-80s, scanning was not prevalent. That was very (laughs) forward-thinking. Yeah, so we were one of the first independent retailers that introduced scanning into our our, uh, operation. But it had, I could see that that was going to change the way we worked. And I could, I had to push my dad was anti. He said, well, we got this far without it. Why do we need it now? But it's that innovation that, that drives me, new ideas, doing something that's a bit different. And that's probably why I, I use motivational maps, because they're a bit different than the, the norm psychometrics that um, most sort of leadership people are, are using. So innovation is really important to me. Being creative, new ideas are the things that drive me. And what I found that towards the end of running that retail business before I sold it was that I was doing pretty much none of that. I was just spending my time managing people and doing those things that really didn't get me out of bed. And of course, my energy was low. I wasn't a great person to, to be around because I didn't want to be there, ultimately. And that's the question to answer. Do you really want to be here? And are you doing the things that give you energy? So a couple of useful models to build on what Mark's been talking about. Mike McCullowitz has come up with the 4D model, which is do, decide, delegate, and design. And your typical leader, when before people like Mark or I get our hands on you, spending way too much time doing stuff, which means that you become a bottleneck and you've moved into the role of rescuer there, or you start complaining about it and taking it out on your staff because you haven't put enough time into designing designing systems and processes, or you haven't delegated. Now, if you don't trust your people, you're very unlikely to delegate, which means that you become a bottleneck because all decisions have to go through you. So definitely check out uh, the 4D model. The other thing that you want to have a look at is the, uh, the four management hats. So you have the role of supervisor, which is what most people in management think their job is. If you've got the right structure, you've got the right people, you've got the right systems, and you trust your people, you've established with absolute clarity what is expected and what the boundaries are, what the ground rules are, then miraculously, you can delegate and you can allow people to make decisions so long as they understand what the parameters are for them to make a decision independently. And if they get it wrong, not to be punished for it, or when they have to escalate. So supervisor, coach, mentor, and trainer. Now, those are the four functions of management, by and large. You also have to, uh, in the supervisory role, be willing to hold people to account. But again, many people are uncomfortable with this. And I know that as part of um, your work, Mark, you talk about helping reluctant leaders, even introverts, um, to uh, be able to perform well. Why is it that, first of all, introverts should be in leadership positions? Because in my experience, often they run fantastic teams. But uh, if we can address that question first. Well, I think introverts take a bit more time to think about things and they, they're not shoot, shooting from the hip. So I think that helps. And, uh, and it's interesting, going back to the four-step model, I do, there's all, lots of four-step models and three triangle models, isn't there, in this leadership world. But the, the, the model I, I teach is four steps in that firstly, it's a visioning at the beginning. And what, what I found is that we, we are better at some points in this process than others. 
So if we think about the first step being a vision, you have to have a vision. If you don't have a vision, then you can't tell people about it. And that vision should also include not only what you do, but how you want to do it and also why you're doing it. So once you've got that vision, you can then mobilize that vision. So that's the next step. And that step, that second step is really important and it's quite hard work because the things you need to be doing is observing and catching people doing things right as well as catching people doing things wrong. And we do far too much of the latter. So make sure we're catching people doing things right so that they know it's the right thing and they're more likely to do it. And then you reinforce that behavior. And then once you've got through that and that's working really well, you step up to the next gear is where you develop and you get more involvement. So you start moving towards more delegation and your role then becomes more mentor. The first steps really is very much the beginning is directing. Next step is coaching. Then the third step is mentoring. So the people know what to do. You're just there supporting and encouraging and all that stuff. And then eventually that last step is more about delegating, passing that. So what I found is a lot of people, you say about some people aren't very good at delegating. Some people actually think they are and go almost straight to that point that their role is to delegate. But what they fail to do in the first instance is be clear about the vision, about what they do, how they do it, and why they're doing it. And so people don't really know what they're doing. So when they delegate, they don't get what they want. And that really comes back to that initial step is not being clear enough. This is called management by abdication. And what also tends to happen is you set an expectation which isn't clear. And ambiguity, to be blunt, is the mother of all fuck-ups. And if you're ambiguous, when someone fails to meet your ambiguous expectation, you cannot then blame them legitimately. Now, no doubt you will blame them because you probably don't take responsibility for your ambiguity and lack of clarity. So make sure that when you're communicating, especially with people who are detail-orientated and tend to be very good at process and are very good at completing and finishing, that you are absolutely explicit and clear. The problem is that if you don't communicate clearly, then what you will find is your mismatched expectations will cause them to do one of two things. Either they will paralyze and do nothing, or they will do what they think you told them to do, and then you'll give them hell uh, for not meeting your expectation. And in both cases, that's on you. So, Mark, tell me this. If we look at the ways that you can ensure that you get contribution from all sides, because I know um, from my experience the last 35 years, often the loudmouth extroverts like me can take over a conversation. But often the real value, the golden nuggets come from the introverts. How do do you advise leaders to draw the best out of uh, your introverts and have them contribute? Uh, that's a great question. Just before I address that, I'll just go back to that explicitness thing that you mentioned. I think it's so important. And one of the, the secrets of leadership is if you can be develop a skill that you, you are very explicit in what you want, then you will stand out because people will appreciate you'll be really clear about what you want. And the trouble with that is that most people get to a management position and they are not actually motivated to be that explicit. They're more motivated to be free and autonomous which doesn't lend itself to being that uh, as explicit as and clear about what they want. 
So they, or, or what they're doing is rewarding someone the way they want to be rewarded themselves. They want to be rewarded by freedom and doing things their way. And so what happens is that there's that knock-on effect where nobody really knows what's going on because no one's been explicit enough. So explicitness is really, really important. If you go away from anything, then think about how explicit you are at explaining things. Well, um, just, just to make one point there, ambiguity mm. at the top leads to politics at the bottom. And this, mm. it, you, you will create the conditions for stovepiping and internal political infighting. It's tough enough as it is, especially given the economic situation now, that you don't want to create the conditions where your uh, your people are fighting amongst themselves. So they need to be clubbing together and working against the recession and against the competition in order to win. And even better, if you can cooperate with your competition, which is a slightly heretical view, then maybe you could all raise the tide yourselves. And um, sorry, I interrupted. Going back to the introvert thing, it's, it's really interesting. What I get, um, one of the things that I was taught and, and, and told to watch early on in my sort of leadership um, career was to watch two films. And one is The Karate Kid, the original one. And the other one is the uh, Coach Carter. Both show really clear, explicit leadership skills, but in completely different ways. And then you realise, actually, they're using very similar tactics and leadership skills, but in a completely different way. And Mr. Miyagi, obviously, is the introvert. He is the person that is very keeps coming back and catching the young lad. I can't remember his name. Daniel. Daniel, yeah, doing things um, also right, but also catching him wasn't doing things right and bringing him back on track, back on flight plan, making sure that he's very consistent in doing that. And that introverted way of doing things is, is well, people, I think people sort of don't really associate it with leadership. I think leadership is more around that extroverted way. They think that you have to be that way. But when you think about Mr. Miyagi, he is a great leader and he gets things done and he's working through that four steps that I've just mentioned. Four steps, have a vision, mobilize that vision, ultimately moving towards you actually passing responsibility at the end to where Daniel takes responsibility for what he is doing and he has not, he doesn't need him to be there. He's doing his own thing because he wants to do it himself. He sees the vision. He has his own vision. So, it's interesting talking about this introverted thing because I've worked with quite a few of them and I, I, of introverts in leadership positions and they're almost trying to be extroverted. But I'd, I'd say we don't need to be like that. You don't need to be the leadership person that you see. Be the person that you want to be. But, and ultimately, all you need to do is be yourself. And that's why it's important. Self-awareness within leadership is really important. Understanding your behavioral styles and how that affects others is really important. But then using the same process that you can, doesn't matter what your behavioral style is, as long as you stick to the process, have that central mindset of high challenge, high support. Know the process, which I've been through a couple of times now, and know what the key skills are. And the key skills at the beginning are explicitness, being really clear about what you expect, where we're going, how we're going to do it, and why we're doing this, those things. And working on that, not wanting to change your behavior, because people don't want to change their, their personality. That's one thing you don't want to do. But we can always change our attitudes and um, our behaviors. 
to build on what Mark uh, said, mm-hmm. at the beginning, first of all, you do need to be a supervisor mm-hmm. so that you can be absolutely clear and explicit about what is needed to succeed. And if you're going to build in flexibility, you also need to build in accountability. And there need to be steps along the way where you get together with your people and um, you help them to recognize what progress they're making, where they still need to work and develop and what they need to build on, what do they need to stop doing, start doing, do more of, do less of. And if you're creating a culture where people are self-aware, then it can also be incredibly powerful. And so one of the things that we've done with our larger clients is in their telephone book, next to their name are their behavioral styles. So that you know that if you're dealing with uh, someone who is very dominant, you don't spend time chit-chatting about the weekend. You'll exchange pleasantries very briefly, and then you'll get to the point. But if you're dealing with someone who's very team-orientated and very other-orientated, what you don't do is just pile in with do this, do that, or else you'll make them very uncomfortable. So learning to understand yourself is the starting point. Once you understand yourself, then you can see how you need to adapt in order to encourage the best out of your people. So what are the four most common questions people ask you around motivational maps? It's not really a question, but most people have a misunderstanding about motivation for a start because there are such things as motivational speakers, which seem to tell... (laughs) We can talk about that. There is no such thing as a motivational speaker. That is a con. It's (laughs) snake oil. And it's a lie. You cannot motivate anyone ever to do anything, no matter what. Motivation is an internal force. So they can be inspirational speakers, but there is no such thing as a motivational speaker. And it's because crap L&D managers want to pep up their people for five minutes. Frankly, they should just hire an entertainer. Get a comedian. So yes, we're actually on the right um, on the same page there, Marcus. Yeah. So yeah, more inspiration than motivation because if you think about what they do, they tend to f- tell your story of adversity through to um, overcoming that adversity, which is inspiring in itself, maybe. But it's not motivating us. What motivates us is what what's within us, and what we need to do is firstly find out what is it that drives us. Motivation is the motive to take action. So one of the questions I get asked, so how do I motivate my team? Yeah. Well, first of all, you've got to, you've got to find out what it is that they're motivated by. You know, and what do you think is motivated by them? You might have a conversation. And then the next question is, okay, so the, the next question is, what motivates you if you're in charge of this, this business? What motivates you? And there lies the question. People don't really understand what motivates them. They don't really get it. Until you can give them a language so they could describe, they can measure. Once you can then describe it and measure it, you can then use that information to improve it. You know, with most things in business, you know, we can measure things. We can measure our profitability, our turnover, all those sort of things. But you can't really measure something which is sort of people orientated. But with motivational marks, the one thing we get is that we know where the energies are by how strong the motivations are, but we also get a feedback as, as to how those motivations are being fulfilled, and that's that's the key. If they're not being fulfilled, then obviously that's something we can use and work on. Going back to the questions I get is around how do I motivate my team, and they want tactics and things like that. When I said, well, hang on a minute, what do you think? What do you think motivates them? What do you think is important to them? 
And do you know what? And I said, look, I tell you what, we, we, we won't worry too much about what motivation is, and we can do that at any time you want to. But I said, the one thing that you've got to remember is that I can guarantee the majority of your people, they want to come to work and feel they're doing something that's worthwhile and they're making a difference. So how do you, how do you help them feel that they are making a difference? You do that by getting good at giving feedback giving good quality feedback. So that's another skill. Key skill in leadership is understanding the importance of it because most people want it. I don't know actually anybody that doesn't want it as long as it's delivered in the right way. And, you know, there is a good way of giving negative feedback. You just got to understand how that works. And if you can do that, most people, a majority of your people will appreciate it because they then realize that you are working on their behalf and also you are giving them information that makes them feel good because then that's what most people do they want to come to work to feel good and if you can give them feedback that makes them feel good there is no downside to that yeah so that's one of the things i get asked more often than not obviously because the misunderstanding with motivation because most people don't get it well and um, again to reiterate what mark's uh, said motivation is an internal force it's a fire that comes from inside that person and if you are not uncovering it at the recruitment stage then shame on you um if you haven't uncovered it by the time you hired them then again you're creating a rod for your own back because people are not motivated in the same way that you are motivated which is a very common mistake one of the most common mistakes and misconceptions I see is the number of sales managers who think that salespeople are motivated by money. Money normally comes sixth in my experience. I've been recruiting now for 30, about 30 years, salespeople, and money invariably comes around six to eight on their hierarchy. What matters above everything else is feeling appreciated. People feel appreciated when they feel valued and when they feel like they're making a positive and effective contribution to something meaningful. Managers who have a one-size-fits-all approach to motivation, which is normally they beat people with a carrot in the form of the compensation plan. And that, again, is something that is definitely worth revisiting. If you haven't read it yet, read a book by Alfie Cohn, K-O-H-N, called Punished by Rewards. And to build on what Mark was saying as well, uh, read Marcus Buckingham's book, The One Thing You Need to Know, which is a fabulous primer on effective management and looking for people's strengths. And if you haven't done the Strengths Finder profile on yourself and your team, then I think you're missing out on a very useful tool. Because if you understand that strengths are things that you look forward to doing, when you do them, you do them well. Time flies when you do them. When they're over, you can't wait to do them again. And if you build a team of people around you whose strengths make your weaknesses irrelevant and vice versa, then miraculously you end up with a cohesive team that tends to work really well together, copes with adversity, and is resilient. So it bounces back after it's had a tough time. Mark, what are the three questions people should ask about motivation but don't? Right. Okay. Well, we've probably already covered some of them because that misunderstanding of motivation. One of the things that 
I encourage my clients to question themselves. It's actually to um, think about, do they work for their team or does the team work for them? Now, it's not really motivational perspective, but I think it's really important to think about that because if you are thinking that your team works for you, then there is a certain amount of stress and responsibility with that. And I'm not saying that's wrong. But I think if you turn it around and say, well, actually, I work for my team. And when I say work for my team, what I'm saying is that you should think about, firstly, what can I do for my team, which will allow them to do their jobs better? If you start with that, that again, you are going to show that you are appreciative. You, you, will be, you will be appreciated because people like to think that you are thinking about them. And sometimes, again, going back to motivation, the small things that matter, and you've already mentioned that when we talk about motivation, some people are motivated because they want to belong. And if you've got a, a, a few of them in your team, you do want to check in with them. You do want to find out what they did the weekend. You do want to get a closer relationship to them because they will appreciate that you're asking certain things that are important to them. So when, when it comes to leading your team, it's about your responsibility to them. And that if you are in that mindset that they work for you, then it's always going to, I think it's really a stressful position. And that's what I used to think, that they are working for me. But if I'd have, going back to when I was in my retail business, I'm sure if I'd have got that mentality, well, I, I work for my team, what can I do for them? I did a certain amount of it, but I didn't have that real mindset that I was doing it. But if you can do that, I think it's, you get a better response. Straight away, I think. The motto for Sandhurst Military Academy is serve to lead. If you do not understand that service is not servitude, first of all, and service is doing whatever you can to help people achieve their objectives. And Emerson's Law of Compensation kicks in here. To get more, give more. If you want to get your needs met, help enough other people get their needs met, too. And again, if you are not listening, if you're not paying attention to the small data, the little things that are going on, then you will fall into the trap of becoming a bad manager. And 80% of people, I've recruited a lot of people over the years, and 80% of the time, they do not leave the job. They don't leave the company, they leave their boss because they don't feel appreciated. It's the same thing with customers. 80% of customers leave their incumbent vendor because they don't feel appreciated anymore. And it's very easy to displace a vendor who isn't paying attention, who just sees a customer as an organic ATM machine. If you don't appreciate people, then they will go elsewhere. And I've had a couple of, uh, sorry, I was just something to think think about something just, uh, just happened recently, a couple of times actually. What we're finding is that we are dealing direct with manufacturers now because they're setting up their own operation to to deal with us as retail customers. And some of them are just diabolical at it. Um, I won't mention them. There was two high-profile brands that I had high regard for, which would normally be sold through a retail operation, which because I couldn't get them, and it was summer-related, so you might give you some idea of what I was looking for, was... I couldn't get it, so I had to go direct to them. And I thought, oh, great, I'll, I'll order it direct. 
course, they have not got the systems in place. They have got no idea of how to deal with it. And so what they do, what they need to be wary of is that they're going to really damage their brand if they don't get their act together. Because you you can't keep doing that because people will start thinking about, well, they used to be a good brand, but now I really see them what they are. They're a good manufacturer, but actually when it comes to serving the customer, uh, they might be used to serving customers like their, you know, their retail outlets, but actually serving retail direct is, is not what they're good at. And, well, and they're, they're, but this is uh, points to something else, which is understanding that people don't come to you because you're a great manufacturer of specific products. They come to you because they have a problem they want to have resolved. And if you can help them resolve that problem, then they will be, uh, you'll earn their business. You won't earn their loyalty if the experience is painful. What they'll do is they'll make the purchase, they'll probably be okay with it, but it will leave a bad taste in their mouth. And then the next time they're looking for something, they'll remember that experience because we are creatures of story. The narrative that people tell themselves, that we tell ourselves, is incredibly powerful. And we ca- you cannot discount that. One of the most important things to understand is as far as the customer is concerned, at any point where your business touches them, they are seeing the business. They don't care that it's marketing or sales or operations or customer service or customer success. Um, They just see the brand and the brand is trust. And equally, within a business, your brand, your brand equity as a leader or a manager is built on trust. What can they trust you to do? How can they trust you to serve them? And increasingly, as um, I uh, spend more time working with Gen Z and millennials, things that they are looking for are things like growth and experience. Um, And they will leave if they're not getting that. So that then creates another major problem. If you're thinking old school management and it's command and control, chances are you will have a revolving door in your team. And that's hideously expensive. And bear in mind, it takes up to three years for an employee to reach their full potential within your business. It costs you, uh, your business will be impacted for up to 38 months after a salesperson leaves a role. And so retention is a really critical part of every leader and every manager's role. And you have four principal functions as a manager. Hire the best people, which means hire slow. Take your time, understand exactly what you're looking for, and be clear about what is expected of that person uh, and what they are intended to achieve. Once you have hired the best people, then get the best out of them. That means a proper pre-onboarding, onboarding, training program, then ongoing coaching and mentoring and accountability, making sure that every day, every week, every month, they are doing their best work. Then make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work. And that doesn't mean that buying every piece of software out there and automating everything. In fact, I'm pushing back against that. My key question to managers and leaders is what is the minimum level of technology that is required in order to help your team do their best work whilst maintaining a human relationship with other colleagues and their customers and their partners. And then the fourth thing is how do you protect them 
from active idiocy from above, that's you, uh, if you're the leader, and how do you clear roadblocks or help them clear roadblocks so that they can get on and do their best work. So you very kindly had me do the motivational map. So what I was going to suggest is that maybe using that as an example, then you explain a little bit about how uh, the motivational map can be used as a coaching tool and how it may be a way, for example, of helping someone advance their career by recognizing where their motivations are and then helping them grow into another role. First of all, if you are in a leadership position and you have a, 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 great, a greater knowledge of motivation, it, will, it is bound to help you. And the model I'll explain in, in a second will give you a, a way to describe motivation, which probably you've never come across before. And once you can describe something, people get it. Because obviously motivation, you know, people have their preconceptions about what motivation is. So motivational maps gives us a model so that we can actually describe. And it's very closely linked to Maslow's. It's not just about Maslow's. It's not just a simple like building blocks of we need this, then we need that, we need that, this. And quite often when we talk about you say, talk about a coaching tool, sometimes we feel that we, we find that um, something that we think would not be important is important. And that becomes something that's quite uh, useful to use as a coaching. Well, what, why is that so important? So let, shall, I, shall I just run through the, the nine motivations? Would that be no, useful? So we'll think? Start, yeah. start out with the three uh, clusters. And okay, then, three so... clusters. Okay, yeah, great. So three <laughs> clusters are... Firstly, there is a relationship cluster, and there is three motivations in that uh, cluster. There's three three motivations in the achievement cluster, and then there is three in the growth cluster. Um, and the reason why, well, the easiest way to describe why there is the three clusters, we talked about relationship, achievement, and, and growth. But if we think about it, what we are now thinking about are the three elements of what actually motivates us, the things that when I talk about the three elements, I'm talking about the past, the present, and the future. So we are influenced by those three things. We are influenced what's, by what's happened to us. We are influenced by what is happening to us. But ultimately, we are also influenced by what we want to happen in the future. So the first thing we look at is the, the strength of those clusters. And if we are strong in growth, that means that we are forward focused. We are looking to what we want to be in the future. If we are strong in achievement, then that very much means that we are focusing on what's happening here and now and what we are achieving. Um, if we are strong in relationship, that tends to mean that we are focused on what has happened to us and the relationships that we built and the things that we get from other people. Now, there's no up or down, we're not making any judgment on this, what's good or bad, but that it has implications on how we look at things and the reason why we will take action. Because ultimately, go back to what we, motivation is the motive to take action. And if we know what the strongest motive is, that is what is going to drive our behavior of what we want to do in the future. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. I, interestingly enough, I had a very interesting conversation for the podcast with a chap called Jay Henricks, who uh, is a journalist who specializes in teaching and writing about rhetoric. And past, present, and future tense are very indicative. So past is often about judgment. 
and uh, that's where our prejudices come from. The present is about obviously the here and now and looking at the situation, but it can be very emotive. If you want to neutralize conflict, then uh, use the future tense. Um, so if you're in a conflict situation and someone's judging you for something you've done, you say, Mark, it, it's not really about what's happened. It's really how are we going to prevent this from happening again in the future? Mm. So we focus on that. And you can neutralize the conflict very quickly simply by using tense. So it's interesting that you're drawing a very similar parallel here. I get that as well. And, and, and also when we talk about when you're having a conversation with something, somebody about an issue, if we keep it to just behaviours and attitudes then, and we're not talking about personality, that makes it so that it's a conversation which is about something else rather than just between me and you. So we're having this conversation because of what happened yesterday. It's not something that's actually in line with our vision. As you know, our vision is that we do these things like this. Uh, this is why we do things. And that's why we're having a conversation. It's not, so it takes away that almost like, it's between me and you. It's not between me and you. It's about something that we are hold dear to us, our organisation, and that's why we need to address it. So presumably this means that when you're recruiting, you should definitely be focused early on on shared values. I, I think so, definitely. If we have shared values, then we are straight away, we are going to have a connection with that person. Uh, and when we talk about motivations, there are situations where we can have conflicts but the thing that actually helps prevent conflict is that knowing about somebody and uh, knowing something and sharing information talked about your you know your behavioral style thing and your strength finder thing i suggest that the most important thing you can do when you have that information is to share it in your team with others because that's what where you get the real learning yes learning about yourself is really useful actually learning about what actually motivates other people, other people's strengths, other people's personality styles, behavioural styles, that's really important because you can then understand people better and you are more likely to get to know them, understand the differences, embrace the differences. Um, and I, I seem to be talking about a lot about embracing people's differences. So when we come to motivations in the same way, you will have things that you are motivated by. And if you have the same motivation in your top three as somebody else, then you'd almost feel that without sort of um, actually saying this is about the search you're motivated, for instance. You'd feel that because you have a connection, because you'll feel that you have something that is sort of bringing you together. What we sometimes find is that if the motivations is at the other end of your scale, as it were, then that's when there's potential conflict. But just by sharing it, you can prevent that conflict happening. So for instance, say, I, I know what motivates my brother, for instance. I used to work with my brother in our retail business. I still, we still have some shared interests that we have to work together. Now, my, I know my brother is, is far more motivated by money than I am. So there's no judgment on this, but I just know it. So when I am in a conversation with him, when we are trying to solve an, a problem, I have to bear that in mind because he will have that lens on. He will be looking at the financial side of that transaction, whereas it's way down the importance for me. I'm not really focusing on it. The things that I focus on are making a difference, being creative and innovative, 
uh, doing things that give me freedom or autonomy and actually being a specialist in something. So there's no money involved there. Whereas I know the one thing that is top of his mind is, well, financially, what's the implications? So I just know that I've got to bring that into the conversation. So it stops me going off on my tangent and doing everything around what is important to me. Understanding what motivates him and that is important to him really does help me in that relationship with him. So when you're building teams using the motivational maps, uh, do you then have people share those so that you can identify to whom you should go when you have a particular type of problem or challenge or to identify where the pinch points are likely to occur because someone will behave in a particular way so that it gives you an early warning system? It can definitely work like that. I don't tend to um, suggest people share them because most people share them um, if they've got a healthy team themselves anyway, because they want to, you know, because they find it interesting. I think, and, and, and I think the one thing that I find is that it's not, it's non-judgmental, not judging anybody about what motivates mm-hmm. them. You just say, well, okay, now I understand why you do that or you don't do that. And so people can straight away get a greater understanding and that's only going to help team building ultimately. So yes, you can use this in that you can create a job role for you that works. Now, when I'm working with a business owner, the natural thing that they would think that they should do is to become the managing director or the CEO, one of what you call them. So in other words, being in charge. Now, if the thing that they least want to be is in charge and be an influence over others, that is not going to be their best role. They are far better to think about, well, what if I want to be the creator, maybe the creative director, why don't I create the creative director be my role? And I'll employ an MD and a CEO or whatever I want to, because I know I'll never be very good at it because I don't want to do it. You know, it's not about I can't do it. It's because I don't want to do it. So why would you do that? Especially if it's your business, you create the role for you. That's the typical scenario I talk about. I think about, you know, create the job role that suits you and then fill the, the, the voids behind. I interviewed a coach called Paul Mort recently, and um, he posited that procrastination doesn't really exist. It's a choice. Uh, mm-hmm. it, you know, if, if you have to do something that you don't really want to do, you'll find a way to choose to look at cat videos or eat chocolate or you know, do something else, because that's the thing that actually is more appealing. So things like self-sabotage and procrastination are choices. They're moving away from something that you don't want to do towards something you would prefer to do. And if you're designing your own role and your own functions um, within a business, uh, it really does make good sense. I, I, I did my StrengthsFinder profile about, I think, 12, 13 years ago, and I restructured all of my work around my top strength themes. And I've just recently done my motivational map with Mark. And I ended up with a score of 99 for my motivation. So if that isn't anecdotal evidence, that playing to your strengths and doing what you love most is incredibly powerful, then I don't really know what is. Because I can honestly say, since I've done that, I have not had a single day where I was bored. Every day I've been doing what I love and do well, 95 to 100% of every working day. Now, that's incredibly powerful, and it means that I'm always fully engaged. Gallup's research 
suggests that only 8% of employees in the workforce are highly engaged in their role. Mm. Now, if you are not highly engaged in your role, then chances are it will show. And it will show in your attitude towards the customer, your attitude towards your colleagues, to your reports, to your bosses. And that then leads to turnover, and that's expensive. It leads to poor performance, which then leads to conflict. And it means that you have to spend more time in managing people as a supervisor instead of delegating and having them make decisions because you can trust them. So whilst a lot of people view this kind of stuff as fluffy, actually, it's rock hard. And more importantly, it drives effective businesses and it uh, creates amazing cultures if you get this right. But it requires work and it also requires looking in the ugly mirror. Um, yeah, and then it takes action as well. Like what you've just described is that you got information and you took decision on it, used it, and you changed something by what you learned. I had a meeting recently with someone that was a potential uh, client, and I said, "Look, this is the way I start. I want you to do. I want to know what motivates you, and I want you. To, I, I want you to know about your potential style, and and also I want to know about that as well." And she, oh, he's, oh, I've done loads of those things in the past, and you know, I, yeah, it's interesting, but. Well, I said, the thing is, have you done anything about that information? What have you done with the information? <laughs> if you don't do anything with it, then yes, yeah, just carry on as normal. Yeah, if you say, oh, that's a nice document, move on and do the, just carry on the same. What you've just described, Marcus, is that you got information and you did something with it. You created a role or a business that actually suits you. And that's, that's the message here. You get information, you say, right, what is it telling me? What am I going to do about it? And that's why in the motivational map, page 14 out of 15 is an action plan, a motivational action plan. Set some goals. What am I going to do? How am I going to do it? And when am I going to do it by? And that's why it's included in the map. And also included in the map are three strategies for your top three motivations. Understand how you can implement something. It's not just information that tells you fluffy stuff. It tells you, look, this is important to you. Why not do this? The thing is, it's your choice whether you do it. You can decide to do it or not. And there it lies the essence of anything that if you want to change something, you will. If you don't want to change it, just carry on as normal, but expect the same results ultimately. So that, that's the key with all this stuff, motivational map, strength finders, behavioral style, all those things. The important thing is to take on board what it's telling you, decide what you want to change and change it. Do something that will benefit you. Uh, you know, it's great that, you know, 99% motivated. There are not many people I've come across with that sort of score. But it's because you've taken positive action. Well, on that note, let, let me ask you this. What, what are you inspired by? What are you reading, watching, listening to at the moment that you think, yeah, this is stuff that other people would really derive value from? Okay, well, we've already mentioned Patrick uh, Lencioni's stuff, which is, I think, is great. And, you know, if anybody in a leadership position isn't into his stuff, then I question, you know, really, why not? Because it's so straightforward and easy to understand. Simon Sinek, obviously, his message is really clear and, and concise, and I, I really love that stuff. What I connect with is being authentic and being yourself and being the person you want to be and not being put, shoved into a a box that people want you to be. Uh, and, and I think, you know, coming back to personality profiling tools, 
people seem to get that impression. That's what it's telling them to do. Is, is yeah, there you go. There's that's what you are. That gives you a right to stay that way. But that isn't the way I see it. I think it's it's that understanding that you know you are what you are, and I'm, you know you can be the person you want to be. But there will always be opportunities to change and to progress and and be the better person. So you can. One of the, my mantras is that I'm in leadership because I want to help and lift up my clients so that ultimately they can lift and, uh, and lift up, help their, their people, their around. And that's it's a knock-on effect. It's that ripple effect that really sort of makes things happen. And we all have an opportunity to change something. And I think character strengths are, are an important part. And I, say, I just said, let it, if anybody wants to look up something that's really inspiring, look up letitripple.com org i think it is and watch the eight minute video about the science of character now i highly recommend watching that video and there's some other videos on there as well which is um quite eye-opening the adaptable mind and thirty thousand days it's very much around about you know the difference we can all make and starting with our characters understand your strengths your character strengths and making sure you see that those character strengths in other people, encourage them to use them, notice them and feedback what you're seeing and encourage them to use it. Again, that's where feedback comes in. If you'll notice something that someone is great at and they're not using it enough, say, look, you're great at this, do more of it because that's going to make more of a difference in the world. And just by doing that, they're more likely to do that. So and I think... Just to repeat that, it's letitripple.org. Excellent. And tell me, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? What am I struggling with? Um, I think I struggle a little bit about getting the motivation, motivation message out, motivational maps. And But the thing is, what you've got to do is take action around it. And I've just been running some webinars and getting people on board with that idea. And when you've got something that you really believe in, which is a little bit different to what people understand about something, that's a challenge in itself. Have you um, but, spoken to your customers, your, your uh, raving fans, as to why they love the work that you do and why Motivational Maps has worked for them? I probably don't do that enough, Marcus, to be honest. Yeah, I think that's um, a, a good um, uh, reminder to, to uh, well, get that feedback. The, the two groups of people to speak to are the ones who love you and the ones who hate you. Um, mm. because, and because So I would go back and actively seek the feedback and criticism for the people who said this is all bollocks, um, you know, it's all woo-woo, tree-huggy, bunny rabbit, cuddling uh, type of yeah. rubbish, so that you can understand the juxtaposition between the two. But the thing that really makes the difference, in my experience, is your customers talking to other people who could be customers. What is it they're saying behind your back? If you can understand that uh, and have and create copy that tells story of the, your customer in their voice about the work that you do, then yep, yep. chances are you will attract a lot more of those people. Yeah, thanks for that. And I think because of the you know the way I've set up my business with the Reluctant Leader Academy, it's probably a little bit different than what you'd expect with, when talking about leadership. It's about understanding the role that leadership plays and maybe slightly different perspective that maybe if someone was coming from the other end of coming down from a corporate background, where I've come from a small business, family business, up into a training, coaching, 
mentoring role. So I, I, I think I see it slightly differently than most people that are doing what I do. Okay. You've got a golden ticket and you can whisper in the ear of the idiot Mark, age 23. What advice would you give him? Wow. Um, I think the thing that I, I think we should all be, and I think this is what I should have been more, is more of a coach. Embracing the importance of being a coach, sharing what I know, realizing that actually I'm not, I do understand stuff. And we all have a different perspective. And just because it's different than somebody else, that's fine. That's fine. I think looking back, I I was far too obsessed with fitting in. And this day and age, you can't, well, you don't want to fit in. Firstly, that's the thing I least want to do now is I want to be someone that stands out, do something different and stir things up. A bit like, well, like you, Marcus, stir things up, make people think. Because that's where you make a difference. If you fit in and do the same as everybody else, then ultimately you're just put in a box with this, oh, that one, you're just doing the same as, you know, somebody else. You need to be a little bit different. Think about how you make people think a bit differently and then see what happens. See what happens from there. Uh, So so that's, that's, I think that's what I should have done more of. Try to stand out more rather than fit in and also be a coach be a coach whenever you can to everybody that you come across excellent okay uh, obviously if that plays to your motivation um, <laughs> indeed um yes okay how can people get hold of you mark okay well uh, you've already mentioned my website which is the reluctant leader.academy there's lots of uh, stuff on there and courses and ways to get in touch with me and i uh, hang out on linkedin not surprisingly and um, other bits and pieces, social media, while Facebook and Twitter, but not so much on those. So LinkedIn and uh, my website would be the ideal place to find out more about what I do. Excellent. Mark Terrell, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. Really enjoyed it. Me too. So this is Marcus Kowski signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you feel that you would be a good guest or you've enjoyed this conversation and you'd like to get in touch, then email me at marcuskowki at me.com or M-C-A-U-C-H-I at Sandler.com. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.